A reading from 1 Samuel. <clears throat> David fled from Nioth in Ramah. He came before Jonathan and said, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin against your father that he is trying to take my life? He said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. My father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? Never. But David also swore, Your father knows well that you like me. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at the meal, but let me go, so that I may hide in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that evil has been determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a sacred covenant with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. Why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was decided by my father that evil should come upon you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan replied to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field, and Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or on the third day, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But if my father intends to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away, so that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the faithful love of the Lord. But if I die, never cut off your faithful love from my house, even if the Lord were to cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Thus Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord seek out the enemies of David. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own life. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, 
fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on this uh, rather remarkable story of friendship and love, that you would help us to know how we might be a community that inhabits the kind of love that Jesus offers us and calls us to express toward one another and to the world. So would you meet us in these words of scripture this morning and open our hearts that we may hear them and that we may live them. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. So for maybe about six months or so, I've been reading a book called The Call to Discernment in Troubled Times. It's by Dean Brackley, and Dean Brackley is a Jesuit priest, and he is writing about Jesuit spiritual practices or Ignatian spiritual practices, and he's particularly concerned about how do you sort of become a person, and how does the church exist as a community in a troubled world, <laughs> remembering the very presence of God. Like, how do you hold on to that? I don't know. If you just think about your life as a Christian, how do you hold on to that reality of who Jesus is in the midst of a world that very, very often feels entirely antagonistic? I'm not talking about, like, opposition towards Christians. I'm just saying it is a broken world. There is massive sexual exploitation that goes on in our world. There is rampant poverty that characterizes our world. There is hunger in our world. There is violence in our world. And so when you encounter these things out there, or when you encounter brokenness internal to your own self-story, how do you circle back to the kingdom of God as if it's something that's real? That it's something worth sticking with, believing taking some next step of faith with. So at the very end of his book, I finished the book this week, finally, and at the end of the book, he tells this, this sort of bizarre story, and it's of him, and it's an early trip to Peru in which he's trying to understand, um, uh, really, institutional poverty is what he's trying to understand. He's trying to understand what does it mean for him uh, to sort of live into this in light of his Christian belief, right? And he says one day he's on a bus in a certain part of Peru that was desert, uh, and he sees a penguin. And he sees a penguin walking down the street and, and sort of waddle. Penguins don't walk, by the way. They waddle, right? They're, they do something like that. And so he's on a bus and he sees this penguin and he's watching the penguin and it disappears out of sight. And then he asks other people, well, hey, why, why have you seen this penguin? And why is there a penguin in this community? This doesn't make sense. We're so near the equator. It just, I don't understand. And no one else has seen the penguin. And so what happens to you if you're in a situation like, yeah, you begin to self-doubt. Well, maybe I didn't see a penguin either. And he says, a lot of times, living with the reality of the kingdom of God feels like that. We believe the story of Jesus. We hold on to the story of Jesus. We understand about uh, forgiveness, but we don't always experience forgiveness. We uh, understand the call to love neighbor, but we don't always experience the call to neighbor. And we don't actually always extend the call to love neighbor either, right? So how do you do that? And so, so he tells this story. He says he's beginning to feel crazy, but then the next day he's with a friend who's been traveling with him. And the friend says, oh, yeah, I've seen the penguin. So his point is just simply this, that as you seek to live life as a follower of Jesus in the world, you need friends. You need friends who reinforce the reality of God's kingdom. You need friends and companions that sort of are allies with you in the journey, as we've said over and over again a number of times this year. You need allies that are in your journey of life with you that help you sort of recalibrate your view, your vision to the reality 
of God's presence in the world. You're not crazy. Eugene Peterson, as he's writing about the David and Jonathan story in particular, he says this about friendship. He says, friendship forms us. So think about this. Who are your friends? Who are the people that you spend the most time with? And how does the time that you spend with your friends shape the person that you are becoming? How do they cultivate some sense of your inner self, the people, the person that you're growing up to be, the person you're becoming. And here's the challenge of the kind of friendship that I think Eugene Peterson is talking about, the kind of spiritual friendship that you see in, internal to David and Jonathan's life is that it's rare. It's incredibly rare. You see, the impulse towards individualism in our own lives and in our culture is not at all new. If you read the earliest stories of the Bible, right, you begin right there in the creation account, and within two chapters, you're in the midst of what? You're into rampant individualism that's emerging, right? You see immediately that instead of sort of moving toward connection, the first couple does what? They retreat from one another. And so what's happened across human history as culture has moved on is that we live in this moment when that impulse toward retreat from one another, the lack of connection, the individualism, has just, it's full bloom. It's, it's so incredibly fruitful that it means this simply this, that we are in an epidemic moment of aloneness and loneliness. You know, if, if, I were just, if we were just in private, and we were having a little private conversation, and I just said, do you, feel, do you ever feel lonely? Almost everyone in the room would say, yes, I feel profoundly lonely because I don't feel known and I don't know people the way I want to know them. That is the fruit of that impulse, retreat, isolation. Sherry Turkle in her book, Alone Together, is looking at the way technology shapes the way we live life in our friendships and in our relationships. And so here's a moment, right? We've all had it. You're, you're sitting in the company of others and you're texting, I've done it, ask Stacy, or ask my daughter who catches me in these moments. And you're in the company of real people face to face and you pull out your phone and you begin to text. Do you know what you've just done? Withdrawn, disengaged, moved away from a real person that's in front of you towards someone who's not. But she says this about texting and about Instagram and all this. And there's nothing wrong with these things at all, right? They can be used for tremendous good. But she says the habit of the way this works in our culture is it just simply teaches us to curate ourselves. I let you know the me that I want you to know. I let you see the curated picture that I want you to see. Tuck having fun. Tuck enjoying some amazing meal. Tuck enjoy, you know, and you just go through the iterations of your Instagram account. Look through all of those curated pictures. Or you think through your texts and how you have a sweet comeback, right? And it's just, it's, that's the nature of how we live with social media. It teaches us practices of curating ourselves and the avoidance of vulnerable knowledge of one another. And so we're alone connected deeply in some sense, but profoundly alone in our particular actual lives. And this is where a story like the story of David and Jonathan is very instructive, not just because this is the story of David's larger, larger sort of journey toward kingship, but because here, for some reason, the narrator brings us into this little sort of snippet of, of David's life. 
relational life, right? Particularly with Jonathan, who is Saul's son, and the rightful heir, the natural heir to the throne, right? But not God's choice. And so here we learn something of the profundity of friendship that they existed or they experienced with one another. And so it's particularly telling and useful, I think, for people like us living in a day like our own. So here's the episode. In David's story, we are picking up a moment beyond the Goliath story, beyond the times when David is playing musical, beautiful music in Saul's household, soothing the sort of uh, the troubled mind of this, this troubled king. Uh, but this is a moment that has become quite opposite to that. David is beloved by members of Saul's household, for sure, but no longer by Saul. In fact, by the time we pick up this story, Saul has already sought David's life six times. And he will continue to seek David's life. And so David, as you can imagine, God's called me to be the king. Wait, Saul is trying to kill me. How do you become a king if you die? So these are the thoughts that are almost certainly passing through David's mind. And so what do you do in a moment of that? You lean into a friend, right? You, you get near someone that you have the kind of relationship with that you can trust, that they'll tell you the truth. They'll help you see things that you don't see. And so the backstory of their relationship is just this. It begins in chapter 18, and this is a moment when David has first come into Saul's household. Robert Alter, in his commentary, observes that Jonathan is smitten with David. It's an interesting way of describing the love or the experience between them. In other words, there's a sense in which Jonathan sees David and he stands in awe. Maybe it's personal charisma. Maybe it's his personal charm. Maybe it is that he's just amazed by this crazy, ridiculous story of David who fights the giant Goliath and takes him down. Maybe he's just that. But here's what we do know about this particular moment. Jonathan's very self is suddenly bound up with David's self. There's a relational connection. There's a tie. There's a soulish tie inside of them that is beginning to emerge in their life. And Jonathan initiates a pact uh, with him. In other words, he enters a covenant bond with, with David. And, he, and that's where, it's where we read about this first in chapter 18, a covenant bond in which Jonathan becomes a person who recognizes God's call upon David's life. And that's so important because Jonathan is the natural heir and David is the spiritual heir, right? David is the one chosen by God, but Jonathan is the natural heir. But here's a moment in which their hearts are so united with one another that Jonathan says, let's enter a pact. I believe your kingship. And so in this moment, when David's kingship seems threatened because his life is threatened, he does what you do. You turn to the friend that helps stabilize your own imagination in a troubled moment. So let me make three observations about this interaction of these covenanted friends with one another. And the first is just the observation that there's a kind of openness in their relationship. There's an openness in their stories. What does David do here? He essentially opens his story and his situation to Jonathan. So he asks a very simple question, am I guilty of anything, right? Have I done something wrong? Help me see it. This is how you use friends. This is what you do in friendship. We open ourselves to one another and we invite the inquiry and the observation of another on our own lives. We basically say, I want you to see my uncurated self. I want you to see me for who I am. 
I want you to help me read this particular situation. I want you to help me hear what I may not be hearing, see what I may not be seeing. What am I missing? So the kind of friend that Jonathan and friendship that Jonathan and David have with one another, it's, it's, it's not a situation where Jonathan is a yes man. It's not that at all. There's profound loyalty, but their loyalty is not blind. Rather, their loyalty is the context of love in which self-discovery is actually possible. Self-knowledge is actually possible and desirable. Come back to Sherry Turkle's work for just a moment. The practices and the habits of social media may actually inhibit us in being friends like that because the pressure is to curate a story and narrate a story, it's much stronger to curate it than it is to become an actual vulnerable person who is known by another. When was the last time you, in a personal friendship, invited inquiry? Where you just opened yourself up and you said, see me. See me. Help me see my story better. In other words, a friend helps you relativize your own story to the larger story of God. So the second thing is this. A friend takes us back to the larger story of God. And you see this in this particular moment, right? This is the I see the penguin too moment, right? When you realize I'm not crazy for thinking about the kingdom of God. I'm not crazy for believing in Jesus. I'm not crazy for sort of aligning myself in some next step of faith with Christ. Because it's true and the friend is near you helping you sort of reconnect and recalibrate to the story of Christ. Think hard, uh, think about rather the difficulty of this particular moment. David and Jonathan are friends, but as we've said, Jonathan is the natural heir. Saul, who is trying to kill David, is Jonathan's father. Think about that. Do you feel the, like, relational bind here that you might feel if you were in this situation, if you were David, or if you were Jonathan. So on David's part, what is he asking Jonathan to do? To inquire of him for sure, but to connect him to the story of God that says that he's the heir of the kingdom. And what does that mean? It means something for Jonathan. It means Jonathan's not. And what does it mean in the situation where Saul is trying to keep his life? David is essentially inviting Jonathan to align himself against his father. Think about the bind, the difficulty that this particular moment is for both of these men. Jonathan, however, sees that God is at work in David, and he holds that line of truth up. And the beautiful thing about this particular text, as we see this interaction, is that Jonathan seeks consistently God's kingdom above his own. And here's what a friend does, a spiritual friend, a Christian friend, someone who's trying to help you connect with the story of Christ, is they're not in the relationship with you for themselves, but they're in the relationship with you inside of this larger story of who God is and what he's doing in Christ. And so when they interact with you, it is God's story that they want to connect the dots to. 
A spiritual friend is one whose own imagination is dominated by God's presence, as Chris said last week, and, and their, dom- their, their imagination is dominated. And so in their interactions, what are they seeking to help you do, seeking to help me do? Help us be persons that remember the story of Christ in the midst of our perplexity. Have you ever been in a situation where you just don't know how to take a next step of faith? A friend can help you recalibrate to the story God is telling. They help you circle back to the work that God is doing, to his presence in our world and in your life. Jonathan knows that the stakes are high, that his loss is possibly very real, and so he reminds David, what, of their covenanted love, of the pact between them, of their loyal love that exists between them. And he essentially says that when you were king, if I am alive, will you show me the loving kindness of the Lord? And if I die, will you extend the same loving kindness to my household? Will you remember my heirs so that together we persist in this story God is telling and not the ones we want to tell ourselves? This is more than a political pact. It is an anchoring of both lives and lines of story within the story God is telling, within his covenant and relationship with Israel. And this is what you and I need to remember, is that a Christian friend is someone who is willing to tell you hard truth, to call you back to the story of Christ which, by the way, may not be a story that you're telling yourself. Have you ever had that experience in a relationship? You've actually, what you've done in calling your helpline, right? You've reached out to a friend, and sometimes when we reach out to our friends, what we really want is just simply flat affirmation. I want your agreement. What I really want is for you to help me build my case. What I really want is for you to align yourself with me But a spiritual friend, a Christian friend, is someone who may tell you truth that you don't want to hear. Are you becoming the kind of person that is open to hearing what God wants you to hear, which may not be the story you're telling yourself? So a spiritual friend is not someone who's merely tolerant of your quirky self. They're not merely sort of tolerant of your dysfunction. They're not merely non-judgmental of your life story but rather they are a person who looks into your life and they see a deeper you, they see a truer you because of the story of Christ. And what they long for you in that moment is that you reach toward that, that you tap into a deeper version of yourself that you may not even be connected to. That's what happens in Christian friendship, or at least it's what should happen in Christian friendship. We come back to the presence of God, we come back to the actual promises of God, and we just anchor ourselves afresh in the context of this relationship. Their generosity, their truth-telling, their willingness to push on us all arise from a love that is shaped by their own God-dominated imagination. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends that you can just unveil vulnerably to? Do you have friends that will actually be more than tolerant of your story? More than hospitable, but their hospitality of your story will push them to sort of connect dots to truths about Jesus and what God wants for your life that you may not know or be in touch with. The third thing 
spiritual friendship, there's a mutuality to this kind of self-giving love. And you see that here in the story that's presented to us, verse 17 in particular. The narrator uses the word love three times repetitively. It is the Hebrew word hesed that is used to speak of a mutuality and loyalty of love within a particular covenanted partnership, a covenanted relationship. So that Jonathan, right, Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he, David, loved him as he loved his own life. What is going on there? Except in this particular relationship, Jonathan and David seem to experience with one another the kind of calling, the commandment that is articulated in Leviticus 19 where we're just simply commanded to what? To love our neighbor as ourselves. Jonathan and David experienced the mutuality of that love one with another so that it's not just lopsided. It's not just one person holding up the relationship. It's not just one person giving it away, but there's a mutuality in their experience. When Jonathan dies, David will grieve deeply, and and we will be told the most remarkable thing. We will be told this, that David will speak of the love of Jonathan, and he will say, his love to me was better than the love of a woman. Mutuality. A depth of spiritual friendship. So here's the question. What do we do with this? How do you pull this to your life? Now, obviously, I'm not David, you're not David, you're not Jonathan, I'm not Jonathan. We are not um, heirs to the king of the throne of Israel, right? We're not in, you know, David has a unique story that's unfolding here. And one of the great dangers is that we would overly sentimentalize it. This is not a Hallmark story. Sorry for you Hallmark fans. You know who that was intended for. This is the kind of friendship that you and I actually need if we are to grow up spiritually. This is not a dream. This is a necessity. This is the context, the ordinary context in which God helps you hold on to your life with Jesus and take a next step with him. This is what we need. And T. Wright says that God has no only children. It's a beautiful sort of pithy statement that we recite every time we have a church member class because what? We're trying to emphasize the importance of connecting your life to the church, of sinking your roots into a community of faith. To be a part of the community is the ordinary context in which we grow and mature spiritually. But here's the problem. Given our culture and given our habits, it is actually possible to join the church and never take the risk of loving like this. And never take the risk of being loved like this. And so we live with our aloneness even inside of the body of Christ. The gospel reading this morning pulls this story of friendship very specifically to the story of Jesus himself, right? Jesus' friendship with us and the calling that we would extend the same kind of friendship one to another. In fact, if you want to think about the evidence that we're meant to offer the world, it is just this. It is our experience of the friendship of Jesus and the way we show friendship to one another that manifests the reality of who Jesus is. 
so that even people outside of the faith might say, I want some of that. I want a life like that. I want to not be alone like that. I want to hold on to hopes and dreams of a world put right in the justice of God. So think about this text once again. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I have loved you, friends, because I made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commandments so that you love one another. Now think about this. What is the fruit that Jesus desires to bring? What does he want you to take the risk in your prayerful conversation with God about? friendship, that you would take the risk of asking God to let you know how he loves you, that you would take the risk of, letting, of asking God to reveal to you how Jesus is your friend, a friend to you. He is a friend of sinner, you the sinner. And that you would take the risk of once having received that love and receiving it over and over and over again, that you would become a person who extends that same kind of friendship and love to other people. And you would live in a community of its mutuality, that it's not just lopsided, but it's together, both and, moving back and forth. That is the fruit that Jesus is asking for because it is the apologetic for the church. It's the hermeneutic of the church. It's the evidence that the church is real. It's the evidence that Jesus is Messiah. And here's the problem. In our particular culture, in our particular segment of Christian history, in our particular segment of even the Christian tradition, it is so easy for us to sort of have a very narrow sense of what God wants. He wants us to have our theology right. Do you have all your T's crossed and your I's dotted? Do you know the, the ins and outs of our theological tradition, right? We sort of lean into that very heavily. It's all cognitive. But you notice that you don't ever see that in the narrative of Jesus' life. What you discover in the person of Jesus is that he offers you an experience of God's presence because of his love. And he invites you to experience his love in such a way that you are changed. And you love as you've been loved. Jesus is interested in a whole lot more than your personal moral refinement. He is interested in you becoming a lover as he is a lover. And that you would live in the world in such a way that you reveal him. So let's do a little mashup here between the story of David and Jonathan and this particular gospel text. Jesus' very self is bound up with your soul. Do you believe that? Jesus looks on you, and he's smitten. He loves you. He delights in you. He sees you. He sees the story that you hide from the world. He sees beneath your curated self. And he says, I love you. I'm bound up to you. Let's make a pact. 
This is the covenanted relationship that God ultimately invites you to come back to time and time again. And to know that God looks on your life and he sees more than your story. He sees the deeper story of your life. He sees who you can be. He sees who you must become in his likeness as you bring all that you have, all of your gifts, all of your complexity into this world, leveraged through a relationship with him toward the world. He desires to unleash within you the same kind of love that he wants you to experience. And this is how the kingdom becomes visible in the world. When we love like this, so may God give us grace to have spiritual friends who help us hold on to the story of who Jesus is and to become the kind of spiritual friends that help others hold on to the story of Jesus and who reveal the potent, the powerful love of Jesus in this world and help us to see that we're not crazy for wanting love to win or justice to roll down. God is present to our world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of scripture, and particularly as we move through our continued time of worship, Father, Son, and Spirit, would you meet us and would you help us to see what we don't see? Would you help us to hear what we forget? And would you help us to find our lives coming more and more into alignment with the love that you have for us that we might love as we've been loved? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.